Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining us. We have a special episode today, and I actually get to interview my own co-host, Omar Ramirez. We're going to dig in on how workplace teams are evolving as a result of the past three years of change. And we'll dive into how teams can start to adapt and design their future. My name is Rebecca Corliss, and welcome to True Understanding. So Omar... This is really special. This is really lucky that I actually get to take a step back and interview my own co-host on this podcast. So that's going to be fun. Yes, for you. <laughs> for me. It's absolutely fun because I, I joked with Omar that uh, maybe maybe we can take the gloves off a little bit. We can we can really, really drill in. huh? But no, I think we're going to have a great time. I mean, for folks listening and watching, I mean, Omar is a workplace expert on his own accord that I love sharing the virtual stage with. So I'm excited to interview you and learn a little bit more from your experience and hear what you have to share. So to dive right in, for folks who have not read your bio all over the podcast page. Can you give us a little bit of a high level of what you do today? And then after you chat about that, I'd love for you to take a step back and actually talk about your journey here and some of those unique roles you've had. Gosh, yeah. So today I am the uh, owner of a company called Affordances. We're an experience consultancy that helps companies design solutions for the future of work. Um, we do that in a few different ways. Um, but I guess my journey to get here, uh, I've been in workplace for the past 14 years and I got into workplace because I studied religion during college and I was interested in the way that communities form beliefs and that the, and the way that individuals form beliefs and the ways that communities form rituals and beliefs and, and things of that nature. And I was also, you know, working offsite as a facilities assistant, really like, you know, putting my, trying to put myself through college and working as a resident director and building houses with Habitat for Humanity during college. Every spring break, I'd be going down to South Carolina um, and Georgia to build houses or frame houses down there. And I guess when I graduated, I was kind of a little bit lost, uh, wandering a little bit. And I found that I wanted to combine that sense of community building and that sense of physical building. And I found the world of facilities management at the time. And uh, it really, really stuck for me. I was lucky enough to get my first job as a halftime mailroom, halftime facilities person at Google New York and uh, worked my way up from there. That's amazing. The The fact that you said you used your religious, your religious studies background to understand communities <laughs> and bring this into this new context is fantastic. Um, and uh, not as unique as I thought. We, we have a future guest in which we'll be talking about a similar path. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So my good friend, uh, Corinne Murray, was also a religion major. Uh, and a few other people who I won't call out in the industry, but a, lot, a few other people who are insights and specifically like insights and research people within the industry were also theologians at one point or religious study majors, uh, which is a fascinating thing to think about. But you think about like the idea of like culture and rituals and community and mm -hmm. how it forms and how beliefs form. It does kind of tangibly tie together if you look at it from a um, like agnostic perspective in some ways. Sure, sure. So yeah. there, there's a trend in there somewhere. I, <laughs> there's, I yeah, there's, very, there's, there's cool. a tie in somewhere. Yeah. Well, I know one of your passions is is talking about 
how workplace is shifting, how workplace organizations are shifting. And this is something that I know that you've been spending a lot of time thinking about. Mm-hmm. I would love to hear from your perspective, what do you believe is motivating the need for workplace organizations to shift right now? What is motivating that change? Some of us went through the, the, the modes of the pandemic with just trying to survive. You know, we were just trying to like the pandemic happened. We were all like, you know, full bore from 2010 to 2020, building these massive offices based on activity-based working most of the time and open plan offices and based on a lot of this, the research that was done in the early 2000s. And, you know, the train kind of felt like it couldn't stop and it really like hit a wall in March of 2020 when everything shut down and we all had a moment to reconsider. And a lot of the things that have come out of the pandemic or been accelerated by the pandemic, a lot of these trends have are causing this monumental shift in what was already somewhat happening before the pandemic, where we had orgs shifting from the finance um, or from like workplace teams shifting from reporting to the finance org to reporting to the people org. And that shift started to happen before the pandemic for some teams, but it was definitely accelerated and exacerbated by the events of the pandemic and the adoption of new working models. More and more people are reconsidering their ways of working than ever before. And teams actually had a moment to stop and think, like, are we doing things the right way? Do we have the right team members on board to go into the future? Does our team have the right skill sets to go into the future? And I think that that pause has given us all a moment to reconsider. Um, And I think it's been a good thing. It's just some companies are now further along than others. Some companies are still just getting started. Got it. So the shift that you're seeing is the move for workplace teams to go from the finance org to the people org. Uh, What you said that's very interesting is while this was accelerated uh, post-pandemic, it was happening before. What was the dynamic that was happening before that led to this shift, even before everything came to a head? I think that shift, that the, the dynamic that's causing, causing that shift is the need for companies are always trying to figure out like how to make people more like happy, healthy, and productive. And one of the ways to do that is to take a more design thinking-led approach and consider workplace as more really of a product and that enables employees and that dynamic shift that was starting to happen in the 2015-2016 era was causing people to shift over to the people org. And part of the reason for this is because it's easier to advocate for human needs from the people org side and advocate the finance team to spend that money as opposed to being part of the finance team and advocating against your own team to spend money for the people org. You know, you want to be acting as an advocate for the employees and it's easier to do that, I think, from the people org. Overall, Yeah, focus on what you're giving, what you're getting, the outcome, and really driving that impact versus maybe uh, a fiscal mindset or a cost-saving mindset. It's about yeah. gaining versus preserving, perhaps. Uh, and, and I think you, you can shift. still, yeah, and you can still have a fiscal mindset. You can still be fiscally responsible while advocating for spend, right? You know, if you're bringing a plan to the finance team as a member of another org, of course, you're going to want to have your numbers together. You're going to want to work in concert with the finance team to make sure you're building something that's viable um, for your company and that's scalable. But you just have a very different viewpoint when you're advocating to a team as opposed to advocating as part of that team, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. So so now this is all about serving people and putting people at the heart of it. How have some workplace responsibilities then shifted in service of this new need of this heightened focus? 
Yeah. I mean, I think we've seen this over the past, uh, I would say like 10 to 15 years, you've started to see this shift or I guess it's not really a reverse specialization because when I started in workplace in 2000, well, I was working in workplace during college. During college, I was doing mostly like it was more manual labor stuff, right? Because I was a facility. You're just lifting now. heavy boxes. <laughs> yeah, I was like, you know, lifting heavy boxes, cleaning things, changing out filters on pool. It was like, it's a whole thing. Uh, Important very work. <laughs> I mean, yeah, somebody had to make sure the chlorine levels were right. Otherwise, that facility wouldn't work. Um, 100%. Yeah, I mean, these are the things that these are like the things that are essentials. And I think we think of when we think of the essential skill sets, right, of what was, you know, facilities management, the essential skill sets of facilities management look very different than the essential skill sets of an employee experience program. And that's kind of how I think about this, right? So if you have, when I was in, first coming into workplace in 2000, you know, corporate workplace in 2009, the essential skill sets were things like vendor management, move management, budget management, like space planning. And mm. all of these things really revolved around the physical aspects of the space, but they were still a service model, right? Like you were still like providing a service so that things ran smoothly and the employees would have a good experience and you would minimize the friction in employees day to day. We didn't really describe it as that, but you were trying to reduce friction. You didn't want people to miss meetings because the calendars weren't put up because this was still the time period where we were putting up physical pieces of paper to show which conference rooms were booked and people would like erase things and mark things off and steal rooms. Um, hmm. But, you know, we were reducing friction, but the the, the skill set was very much focused on the physical space. And, you know, when I look at the organizations now, if someone was starting off in, you know, as an employee experience manager and an employee experience assistant at a company, the skill sets would probably look more like internal communications and program development and program management. And yes, still budgeting and fiscal responsibility, but maybe design thinking. And these these skill sets are more focused on the humans than they are focused on just the physical building. And you're still trying to reduce friction. But, you know, my general argument to teams that we're talking with now or general like thing that I'm trying to get across to them is that the essential skill sets are the more people centric skill sets. And then the specialization afterwards that should be happening now is specializing in FM or specializing in project management or specializing in construction management, because everyone's going to need these essential human skill sets. And then we can specialize further from there, whereas in the beginning of career journeys in 2009, 2010 and up through 2020, the essential skill sets were, okay, learn how to manage the office, learn how to manage the vendors, learn how to manage the budget and the physical space. Whereas I think that's getting flipped on its head a little bit now because more and more companies are starting off in a hybrid model and starting off in, they might start as a remote first model and then eventually need space as they start to scale or change over time. So I think those skill sets are kind of switching places now. Interesting. Would you go so far to say that workplace, like the foundational skills of workplace are more softer skills than hard skills now, given this shift? Yeah, I, I, I would say yes. I think the, the essential skill sets are more soft skill sets. And I think that's one of those things that you can't outsource or automate. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that those human skills um, and studies have shown this, that you know, the human skills, communication, the soft skills are are essentially the things that are going to be required more and more for the future work and creativity because those things cannot be easily replicated by AI or outsourced, et cetera. You know, it's like the facilities roles, unfortunately, like the hard, uh, hard services roles were some of the first things to be outsourced 
when, you mm-hmm. know, outsourcing really picked up steam in the early 2000s for like these companies who were outsourcing facilities management services um, because they were deemed as, quote unquote, non-essential. But, you know, if you're building power, lights, et cetera, water doesn't work. Uh, somebody's always upset and nobody ever really, it's one of those things like nobody ever really notices the electricity until it's gone. <laughs> um, you it's don't true. really think about your internet router until like it goes off one day and you're like, no, there's no internet. It's like, yeah. it, but you don't think about how it gets there most of the time. Yep. That's true. So, I mean, this is, this is a pretty big deal. So you think about this began pre pandemic, um, accelerated post pandemic, seeing it even faster, our teams, our workplace teams equipped to adapt, to actually make this shift and why or why not? Um, I think it really depends on the team. We've definitely spoken with teams. I guess there's two parts to this. So some teams are better equipped to adapt because they have more resources. And some teams are less well equipped because they're under-resourced, which is a, a critical thing that happens, especially to young teams. You tend to be under-resourced. You're always asked to do more with less. I think the the dangerous thing here for teams is I've seen teams try to change titles before they update skill sets. Hmm. And I think that's a huge, huge mistake. Um, They'll be like, oh, well, now you're an employee transformation specialist. And it's like, I'm still the same person. What does that mean for me? Right. And it's like, it's like, okay, it's great that you gave this person a new title, but you can't really like suddenly call a Toyota a Bugatti and be like, oh, it's a Bugatti now. It's like, no, but it's, it's, it's still a Toyota. It's the same thing. You, have, you haven't changed anything about this car. It's still the exact same car. Um, but we really need to focus on like that holistic change. I think some teams are better prepared than others. Some teams have started to make these updates. Some teams have started to bring in new skill sets by bringing in new team members or redesigning their org. Um, you know, I think the things we generally say to people is like the first thing you need to do is assess your org and involve your Mm -hmm. team in those discussions, right? Like you want to develop a plan and co-design it with your team. If your company suddenly says, Hey, we're a work from anywhere company, we're going to still have offices and we're also going to let people make the choice and be flexible when they're coming in. Okay, great. But now you need to create a service model and a team that actually meets the needs of those employees and the new ways they're working. And as an org leader, you need to assess your org. You should involve your team in those discussions in order to develop a plan that enables you to evolve your team as opposed to dissolving it, as we say. Like, you know, like you want to upskill your team members, not see them become irrelevant, right? Or become mm-hmm. uh, replaceable. So develop that plan with them, co design it with them, and then train and upskill your existing team members. And only after you upskill them, then you can change their titles, right? You're like, hey, like, you know, Mike got a, a, you know, a certificate in design thinking. He's going to be helping us rethink how we do our programs going forward. He's now an employee experience manager instead of a facilities workplace manager. We're updating our skills. We're updating our team. And that's a great story to tell within the org as well. But then after you do that, after you upskill your internal team, or if your timeline's extremely short and you don't have enough time to like, you know, do both, you can upskill your team at the same time as bringing in new team members with new skill sets that will then transfer onto your team. Because every time you bring in a new skill set or a new employee with a new skill set, that's an opportunity for the rest of the team to learn from them as well. I always really loved and never really feared when other people were brought into a team with different skill sets from me, because I just kind of always thought of it as an opportunity to learn from somebody awesome. Like when I remember when I was at, um, Atlassian, for example, they brought in this amazing, um, architect 
our former architect named uh, David. And David was, uh, I mean, he worked at Google, he worked at Apple designing spaces. And I was just so excited to just listen and learn from him and see how he worked with people and the kind of um, way he thought about design. And that was super exciting. And I think that there's a lot of opportunities for us to bring in people with different types of soft skills now to these teams and for our teams to then learn from those people. And that's a, I I think it's an exciting time. So even just the having the ability to make room for new ideas, people with different perspectives in order to just drive that change and make sure that team has a willingness to, to listen and, and consider those new thoughts and bring them forward. Mm -hmm. I think that's great. There's something else that you said, and I want to make sure we dig into. You said something that's key to whether a team will be successful in adapting or not um, are the resources at play. And just to make mm-hmm. sure we're really explicit here, is that is that is that budget? Is that size of team? Is that something specific? Like what resources does someone have or not have that yeah. might lead to their ability to adapt? Yeah, I, I think resources you're right. It can mean a multitude of things. So that's, that's worth clarifying. Um, resources in budget, number one, because if you don't have resources for budget, how could you possibly get your team the classes they need or the mm-hmm. information they need? I think the other thing um, resource wise that people need is, and this is the, the of course, our, our biggest resource shortage in the world is time. Right. Yeah. You can you can pay for someone to have classes. You can have the budget to have people get classes. But if you're understaffed, um, I would always call that under resource. But if you're understaffed and you're asking someone to do two jobs already, I don't know if they can really have the time to add a third job of learning a whole new skill set. Um, mm-hmm. So that makes it extremely difficult for teams to upskill a lot of times. They just they're, you know, time poor. And they don't have the time, um, even if they do have the budget. And I think that's a huge problem. I think the third thing about this is that in our community, there's kind of a lack of, not kind of, there is a pretty big lack of educational opportunities or um, the ability to find certain resources um, within the, the work and place community. And we don't really have a great coagulator of resources for learning education, um, just general information right now, besides, you know, going to LinkedIn and looking up the future of work, et cetera. Um, so that's something that, uh, we're deeply concerned with in our practice and helping people kind of find those resources in a more, uh, fruitful way. Um, but that's, it's definitely a, a big issue within the work and place community right now. Yeah. So then bringing that all together, it seems like workplace, le- workplace leaders, their opportunity is to do their best to make time and space for this learning, for this evolution, for the individuals who are, who are leading these practices because, and it, and it's really hard to do given how much work there is to be done. Uh, but it seems like that's going to be a real critical component. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think more than ever, um, you know, as we're, as we're going through this, this time period of, uh, I guess, fiscal instability, we can call it, um, cause mm-hmm. we're technically not in a recession, like a fiscal instability, Everyone wants to make sure that their teams, you know, remain relevant and, and that their teams remain critical to the company. And, you know, I would make the argument that work and place teams are, have never been more critical because we are the teams that are supporting that foundational culture that makes companies run. But, you know, I think that people need to, um, or teams need to enable their teams to learn and grow and have those conversations and take the time to have those conversations with their team members about that growth because not everybody is excited about change. Not everybody's excited about these new ways of working. Not everybody's excited that, 
you know, 45% of total days are now worked from home uh, in uh, the modern world. And they, like the University of Stanford had a great study that came out a few weeks ago where they were saying that, yeah, 45% of total days in the U.S. are now worked from home across the, across the United States. And it's an interesting thing because it changes the entire dynamic of someone's job. And for somebody who's been in facilities management for, let's say, 20, 30 years, that's a huge dynamic shift. So it can be uncomfortable. And I think having those conversations is important. So that makes sense to dig into kind of the the personal shift, the the experience that one ex- one has in as, as an individual and, and having to overcome that. Is there a leadership and or business argument to not move workplace under people and to have it remain under mm. the finance org? If you have an exorbitant amount of portfolio spend, if you have a large portfolio, you're not a very you know customer-centric company or user-focused centric company or people-centric company, and you're a manufacturing company, perhaps, there might be a good reason to keep it at the finance org because the majority of your money is being spent on the infrastructure of the physical mm-hmm. space. Uh, I think for any company that is focused on human capital as being one of their most important assets, where people are your mm-hmm. most important asset, then I think it makes sense to have it in the people org. I'm sure there's mm-hmm. definitely arguments that I'm sure someone could make to me to have it into the finance org for certain types of companies. But like anything in the future of workspace, we always tell people there's no one size fits all anymore. There's no more cookie cutter approaches. There's no more ability to say 100% of the time, this is correct. I just think that doesn't exist anymore, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, we used to have KPIs and standards that would you know work across the globe. And that's just not really possible anymore either. So I think for that same reason, there might be a great reason why your company wants to have it under the COO org even, right? Like I've reported mm-hmm. to the uh, chief operations officer before and it, it worked because the company was focused on operational integrity and that made sense. Um, so I think there's, I think it actually tells me when I look at companies and I look at job roles and teams it tells me a lot about how that company is oriented when I look at whether they're under the chief finance officer or the chief people officer or the COO or sometimes even the chief administrative officer. Hmm. And what might take first priority? Yeah. What is the, what is the focus of that company at that current moment? Because it has shifted over time, too. I've seen companies go from having it under the CFO to the CPO and then going under the chief administrative officer, for example, and then it you know, switches again as the company scales. And that's a natural occurrence, especially with small startups that are scaling. Yeah. So tell us a few stories. Have you seen an example of a team that has made the commitment to be part of the people org um, and has needed to adapt? And maybe it was quite a journey. Maybe it was a stressful journey for this team. What have you seen? What stories can you tell us about successful adaptation and change? Yeah, I mean, I think that when I was, I guess if I was a good example, when I was at Atlassian, we were originally you know, reporting under finance and we had this shift that happened, um, I guess just about a year before I joined, going under the chief people officer, who was Helen at the time. And, you know, the team originally had this very large focus on physical space and butts in seats 
and not butts in seats, meaning like how do we achieve the optimal vibe, as I would call it today? How do we achieve the mm -hmm. optimal amount of like density within space to like make sure that the space feels good and active and has that like nice mm -hmm. flow to it? Has that buzz? Yeah, that buzz, exactly. Yeah, that, I mean, that's what you wanted. And like, you know, for, for that company specifically, there was this formula they figured out where it was like, if we have 80% occupancy on any given day, that's the sweet spot. But if we fall to 70, the vibe falls a little bit. If we go to 90, it gets a little too crunched inside. And this was based off a bunch of different metrics, et cetera. But I think that transition was not necessarily easy because, you know, we started to focus more on people and get more into surveying to understand the needs of employees. And we had this wonderful person on our team named Artemis who was focused on surveying employees and building that feedback loop and building that methodology. And it's a, it's a totally new muscle to need to build going from just focusing on, okay, we report to our chief officer that we report to, and they want to know about these KPIs and we're hitting these KPIs and we're hitting our budgets and we're hitting our deadlines and that's enough. It's like, no, we also want to know like, how are people enjoying the spaces? What's the feedback look like? How are we learning from that feedback? And I think that they did a really good job on Atlassian team of bringing in new, um, new team, like building skill sets internally, but also bringing in new team members over time to add to those skill sets in order to build those new muscles, right? And like bringing in people who had backgrounds in architecture, interior design, design thinking, and, you know, employee, building employee feedback loops. And that model was a really critical thing that happened in that, you know, pre-2018, 2019 era for that team to continue to scale and grow and build new exciting things. And they actually wound up, I think, adapting much, much um, more easily to the changes during the pandemic um, than any of the other teams I've actually interacted with. Interesting, because they had that foundation and they started going in that direction already and really getting mm -hmm. that qualitative feedback and assessment, like how are things going? <laughs> what is the experience holistically in addition to some of those more hard KPIs getting that blend? Yeah. And I think the employee communication portion there is really important, like getting feedback from your employees, understanding their needs and you know, understanding the difference between the, you know, as we call it, the head and the heart, right? Like you, people would mm -hmm. say they want something a lot of the time and they do the exact opposite. When you'd survey them, they'd be like, oh, this is what we like. And then they wouldn't use it. And you're like, but you said you wanted this thing. Why didn't you ever use it? And they're like, you know, trying to understand those nuances between what humans say they're going to do and their actual actions is something I think a lot of teams are actually struggling with now when they're trying to understand like when people are going to come back, when people come back into the office or like how, why, how or why they come back to use space. Um, a lot of teams I've seen struggle with that where they ask the question of like, hey, would you come in if we did this? And people are like, yeah, sure, I'd come in if you do that. And then they don't come in. Hmm. <laughs> You're like, but you said, you said you would. Yep. Omar, I want to I wanna wrap with this question. I want to make this really hands-on tangible and make sure everyone walks away with uh, some specific learnings that they can take, depending if this is a challenge or an experience they're having right now. So for the teams that are maybe undergoing this experience right now, they're, they're going through an organizational shift from the CFO to the chief people officer into that people org. They're having that change right now. What would you recommend to that team? What are some practical advice that you can give them in order to make mm -hmm. sure that's as effective and successful for them as possible? 
Yeah. I mean, I think I kind of simplify it by just saying assess, train and grow. So like assess your team, train your team, grow your team, whether it's in skill sets mm -hmm. or in uh, new team members bringing in those skill sets. I think the assess part can also involve like figuring out, do I need to bring in someone to help me figure out how to do this? Do I need to bring in a consultant or someone from the outside to just advise on this, to help us work through these problems, to facilitate those conversations? I think that's a really important thing to consider. I think there's no better time to start than now because the world has changed and the dynamics have shifted. And as you know, the world of work starts to solidify a little bit more over the next year, we're going to see more and more companies make decisions about their working models. You know, companies previously before the pandemic have been signing, you know, five to 10 year leases. And as more of those leases start to expire, companies can really start to make true decisions about what their work models look like going forward. And so I think it's better to prepare your team for what is coming um, than to wait and see what happens and try to train yourself after. Oh, I love that. Do your best to prepare your teams for what is coming versus wait and see and <laughs> prepare after because then it might be too late. That's really, really good advice. Well, Omar... This has been so much fun. I am so glad that we got to, I got the chance to interview you directly. I mean, you have so much experience and wisdom that you can get. And I know this is a topic that's, that's really successful and really important to many. So thank you for chatting with me. I appreciate it. No, thank you. And I, I guess next time I get to grill you, right? This is how this works. Yeah, well, next time I get to I'll let this. you return. Yeah, you can return <laughs> the favor. We'll, we'll see. I think that's only fair. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you. Hey there, this is Omar Ramirez, co-host of the True Understanding Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review to help us expand our reach and grow our community of workplace leaders. If you'd like to suggest a topic or guest, please drop us a line at trueunderstanding.vergesense.com. The True Understanding Podcast is created by Vergesense. Over 130 global companies rely on Vergesense for a true understanding of how their workplaces are used so they can continuously and confidently optimize spaces to reduce costs and improve employee experiences. 